0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Donnie Mathis, and I uh, teach at North Greenville University. I teach in the College of Christian Studies there. I taught math. Uh, while he was a student there at North Greenville. And I just want to say thank you to Abner Creek Baptist Church for the way that over the years you have taken very good care of our students from North Greenville. and have had them serve here in the past. And, uh, and I want to thank you for that and your support as a church of the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And more personally, I want to thank you for uh, using a book that I wrote with Pastor Matt Rogers at the Church at Cherrydale, where I am a, also a, a lay pastor, uh, in your Bible study. And this morning is a kind of a special Sunday for me. This is the first time that I've ever been able to preach uh, out of uh, this Bible the Seven Arrows Bible uh, in the Christian Standard Bible that Lifeway is uh, publishing. And I just got one of these in the mail the other day. This is a study Bible that Matt and I did based on that Bible study method you used. And so this morning, I get to preach out of this Bible, and I'm pretty excited about that. It's a pretty cool thing to to be able to see the product of a a good bit of labor uh, come to completion. So uh, I'm pretty excited about that this morning. and wanted to share About that. So this morning, we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 12. And I want to say that you are especially blessed. I've listened to the sermons from the last two weeks in this series, and you are especially blessed by the teaching that you just continue to receive on a week by week basis. And I know you have exciting days ahead. So this morning, we're going to be examining this declaration, this letter to the church in Pergamum. This is a a letter where the issue of compromise is front and center. Having the ability to compromise and make compromises is oftentimes seen as a skill that is essential to making it through everyday life. At work, when disagreements arise as to what would be the best strategy for expanding the business or completing a task, people make compromises for the good of the whole so that there can be peace in the workplace and that things can be done for the good of the bottom line of the company. In government, we applaud politicians, and frankly, there seem to be fewer and fewer of these, who can work for real compromise to accomplish good for the people compromise It's not brought about by power, but out of goodwill. And we can get a little more personal every day. Spouses make comp- compromises so that there can be unity and joy in the home. And in my house, my wife and I attempt, and that word is very much emphasized, to help our six-year-old son and our two-year-old daughter who thinks she rules the world to navigate the seemingly constant give and take of toys and anything else in the house that no one really ever seems to notice how much they want until the other sibling has it. Never, I'm sure you've never experienced that in your lives at all. Sometimes in these instances, a wrong has to be righted. (coughs) Excuse me. And at other times, you have to come up with creative solutions so that no one exactly gets everything that he or she wants, But everyone can at least be satisfied with some level of the outcome. In every one of these circumstances we've talked about, compromise is seen as a very positive thing for everyone involved. Well, why is that? First of all, it keeps us from being selfish and whining and pouting until we get our way. And that can be true when we're 65 years old as much as it can when we're two. Compromising actually helps us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But sadly, oftentimes, it's uh, something beyond our grasp. But when we mature, we realize that in compromise, everybody can be a part of a win-win situation. But this morning, I want us to consider when compromise is dangerous, that we need to be cautious with compromise. So why would I say that? Why am I saying that we must be cautious with compromise and what forms of compromise are actually not loving our neighbors as ourselves, but are dangerous steps to walking away from fellowship with God and even dangerous stumbling blocks that we put in the place of those that we love? Well, the Scriptures will demonstrate to us that compromise with the world about who we are as Christians will lead to our destruction. And we might say it's easier to compromise. And honestly, in some ways, you're right. For generations, some voices, uh, for our generation, some voices claim that folks outside of the church, unbelievers might listen more to our message if we were not so different from the rest of the world. In previous generations, there was a call to abandon the idea that the Bible was the inerrant, infallible Word of God and to dismiss the idea that the miracles in the Bible actually happened as the Bible described so that the message of the Bible would be easier for folks to receive. And it brought great destruction to the church. Today, folks are saying that we should compromise on issues related to sexuality using the language of loving your neighbor as yourself as their rallying cry. And the end goal in this is so that we'll be viewed more favorably by those who are outside the church and so that we won't seem so weird and so that we'll be in step with everything else that's going on in our culture. Would it be easier if we compromise with the world? It might be. But is compromising the truth a path that Jesus will ever endorse? And the answer to that is a resounding no. And we've got to ask ourselves, in the end, is compromising the truth actually loving our neighbor as ourselves? Because what we're passing off is loving our neighbor as ourselves is actually just indulging people's whims and their fancies. And we know that indulging whims and fancies in any kind of relationship is going to bring great pain in the end. Well, the good thing is In John chapter 2, or in Revelation chapter 2, John is going to make it very clear that the same kind of problems were going on in first century Pergamum. The world has not really changed all that much. So let's read together, beginning in verse 12, and let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. It's going to be on the screen as well. This is from the Christian Standard Bible, beginning in chapter 2, verse 12 write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. Notice it's the second time he said that about Satan. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to be a stumbling block. Or to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's be seated. This declaration begins... In much the same way as the first two declarations. We have the word from the Son of Man that reminds the people of Pergamum that the Lord has not forgotten them, has not abandoned them, and has the power to carry them through every trial and difficulty that they could ever, ever face. Because He is with them. He is walking in the midst of the churches that is, He is near to them and they will never, ever be alone. So as we walk through this beginning portion of the passage, we're going to get our feet kind of grounded in Pergamum. And there's a couple of pictures I want to put up on the screen for you to to investigate here. So let's look at the first one here. This is this picture is of the the Acropolis of Pergamos. So the city laid here on the bottom in the valley and then went up the hill and on the top of the hill there were all kinds of various places of pagan worship and pagan idolatry. But this was the capital city of the region. The city had received due to its status as the capital what was called the power of the sword. So you, Think about what we've already seen in the last two weeks, how John is going to reference in this word describing the Son of Man back to chapter 1 in that description of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. He's going to make reference specifically to the sword that comes out of the mouth of this resurrected king. This is a theme that's going to become even clearer when we get to chapter 19 of the book as he comes in power to defeat all the enemies and to set things right in this, re, in this earth that he is remaking. So the king has this sword coming out of his mouth. And so there's this comparison that John wants these folks in Pergamum to recognize right from the beginning. The governmental authorities in your city have the power of the sword. That is the power that government has in any place and in any time is that the government has the most guns. They have the army. They have the ability over life and death. And that can be a fairly intimidating thing. In fact, in this city, they had even already taken the life of one of those who was from their body. So the fact that the government of the city had this authority most likely caused the Christians in Pergamum great amounts of fear. Could my life be taken because of my faith in Jesus? And so to counteract this intimidating image of Rome's power as it's already been exercised in their city, John draws upon this description of Jesus from chapter 1. and says, there is a sword that King Jesus has and there's a sword that Caesar has. King Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He has this sharp two-edged sword that is coming out of his mouth. When he speaks, he speaks with power and with authority. And in the end, he is the one who has power over life and death in a way that really matters. Caesar might be able to take your life today. But one day, King Jesus is going to destroy all the kingdoms of this world And he will vindicate the suffering of his people as they cry out in chapter 6 from under the altar, those who have been slain, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our suffering? And he says, just you wait. When the number of your brothers and sisters who are going to die as martyrs for the kingdom is complete, I will vindicate your suffering. And John is reminding them that there there is a power that Caesar has, but it is nothing in comparison to the power of your king. So don't ever be afraid. And so he goes on here in verse 13 and he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. It's an interesting description. You were holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. The second time. So before we move on and we examine how we can learn from the specific exhortations that John's going to make in the word of rebuke and the word of warning and the word of reward, let's look at one more way that the Son of Man reminds them that he knows them well. So let's move on to the next few slides here. The next slide, we're going to see this precinct, this sacred area where they would go on the top of that Acropolis to worship. And so you have that reference there. Satan dwells there in the throne of Satan. And there's a lot of speculation among scholars as to exactly what that is. And there are several things that have been uh, mentioned about that. You'll notice there with my brilliant artwork, uh, there that red circle around that little ruin there, a little circular ruin on that in the first century in Pergamum, there was a statuary to the Caesar. So think about that. Caesar has the power of the sword and in this city, as in all the cities, frankly, of Asia Minor, there were folks who would have the express responsibility of leading the people of the city, as you've heard before, to worship this Caesar. But it's even more pronounced here because of the fact that they can actually put you to death here. So, some have said, well, the throne of Satan is this place where they worshiped the Caesar here in the city. Others, if we go on to the the next slide, will argue that it was the temple of Zeus. So, this is the foundation of the temple of Zeus. They actually picked up this temple and moved it piece by piece to a a, a museum in Berlin, oddly enough. And on this place, oftentimes called the throne of Satan, is this, uh, or at least by some, the temple of Zeus. So you've got this place here in the city where there is the express purpose of worshiping this king god of the Greek and Roman pantheon. And again, you've got the people being led into pagan worship in this place where the throne of Satan is. And one of the things that we see behind every god or goddess that the people are called to worship and this is throughout the entirety of the Scripture, stands Satan, wanting to lead the people of the earth into worshiping something other than the one true God. And then lastly, you have this cult of the Asclepion. Now, this one is a little bit different. Uh, These are uh, some healing pools that are left there in the ruins of Pergamum. And this was a place where folks would go for healing. And interestingly enough, the symbol of this location was a snake. In fact, on the symbols of medicine in our culture even today, that snake that's wrapped there in that image is from this particular location. And if you think through the entirety of the Scriptures, the place of the snake in the overall story of the Bible is quite problematic. I mean, even as far back as Genesis chapter 3, we're told that one would come from the seat of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. You say, well, which of these is it It's not altogether clear, but here's the one thing. Regardless, I mean, think about all of this imagery, all of this worship that is there to lead the people astray. That if you compromise with this, if you just go along to get along, life will be easier and it's going to be in their face every day, every moment. John wants them to recognize something. It is going to be difficult to live out your faith in a genuine way where you're proclaiming the truth of the gospel of the one true king because day in and day out, there are going to be folks who are trying to call you to worship some other god or goddess so that you can get through life well. But he wants them to see Jesus is better. Jesus is the only true king. Jesus is going to be with you in the midst of every single circumstance that you face so you endure well to the end. And there's a word of warning here that I think we all need to take heed of. Look at what Jesus says, if you do not heed this warning, I will come and make war against those who continue to hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, those who continue to compromise with the teachings of these gods and goddesses. I will come and make war against you. So let's ask ourselves a question. Would we ever want to be in the place of the one true and living God, in the person of Jesus Christ, making war against us? I think... That we would all have to say, not on your life. So let's see what John exhorts them to, what we can apply in our lives, even as they applied it 2,000 years ago. Well, let's begin by looking in verses 14 and 15, and let's examine what it means to confront compromise with the culture. So look at what he says there in verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And there is the rub. Is the church in Pergamum going to engage the culture faithfully or are they going to so engage the culture that they begin to look like the culture? You see, it seems from what we've already seen with Antipas being killed for the faith that this church has actually got a pretty… outward posture to the world. They want to be out there amongst the city, amongst the people who are worshiping these pagan gods and goddesses to make the glory of Jesus Christ known. They're not inwardly focused. They're not focusing so much on themselves that they've forgotten about folks outside the church. They are engaged with the culture. The problem is they're beginning to look a little bit too much like the culture and not enough like Jesus' people. So he's going to make a reference to Numbers. Now that seems like a maybe an odd place for John to go as he makes this reference to Balaam and Balak. But if you go to Numbers, you're probably gonna remember one part of this story. It's the funniest part of the story because Balaam's gonna be riding on a donkey. You may even have heard of Balaam's donkey before without ever ever actually reading the story. Balaam's donkey, Balaam is riding on this donkey. He's been employed by Balak to pronounce a curse against Israel. And Balaam is a false prophet. He's been paid this money and he's going to make this curse. And why is this curse being given? To tempt them into worshiping idols, which they were frankly already fairly prone to do. So, Balaam is riding on this donkey. He's tried on multiple occasions to pronounce a curse against Israel. And when he opens his mouth, God actually speaks, even though he's a false prophet, he actually speaks a blessing rather than a curse. And then, finally, he's riding on his donkey, and the donkey stops. And he tries to beat the donkey, and the donkey speaks to him and says, I'm not taking another step forward. You're going to get me killed. Because God's warrior was there. We remember that. Usually making joke about someone. If God can make a donkey speak, he can make somebody else speak. But the amazing thing about this is eventually when he is killed, Balaam is gonna be killed in chapter 31 because he's a false prophet. The very thing he tried to lead Israel into they're going to give in to because they take these women that are left after they've killed all their husbands and they take them for their own. And this makes Moses very, very angry because they are compromising in the end with the culture. So he makes this reference to this false prophet because he wants them to recognize that this is an old story. This is nothing new. And the temptation to compromise is always going to be there close at hand. And you've got to be aware of it. So he makes this reference to a false prophet in Israel. That's the first thing we see out of verses 14 and 15. The second thing that we're going to see here after we remember this false prophet is he's going to confront them with this issue of food sacrificed to idols. So that's our second thing. And he's going to say, do not eat food sacrificed to idols. He says it right there in verse 14. Don't eat this at the very end. Do not eat this meat sacrificed to idols. And you might wonder, Those of you that have read the New Testament a few times, why this is even an issue? Due to the things that Paul says about not worrying about whether a food has been sacrificed to an idol when you go to the marketplace to buy food. He does this in 1 Corinthians. But what John is talking about here is not what they purchased in the marketplace, but about where and in what context they ate that food. And this is really important. When we're taking part in really all kinds of activities most of which in particular contexts would not be sinful or wrong, they can become that when we consider those two items. Where is it happening? And in what context is it happening? Those two issues are really, really significant. And so John is asking them to examine the where and in what context of the food that they are eating. Now, that might not be something that is, you know, right in front of us that there's, that's easily applicable, particularly as it relates to the food that we eat. But we've got to be careful to pay attention to what are the things that we do in life that in one context would not be sinful, but in other contexts would very well be sinful and could lead someone falling into sin and separation from God. And that's what John's really concerned with here. John is concerned that the people of God are being lured, maybe even unwittingly, into the pagan religious practices of the false gods. So here's what would take place. Most of the time, this food sacrifice to idols could be taken in several different ways. In actual worship, where the people of the city gather to worship this pagan god or goddess where it is explicitly right in front of you that you're eating food in the worship of this pagan god. It could also be found in the marketplace, which is talked about there in Corinthians. But here's where it becomes a bit of a sticky subject. Everyday life is filled with this idol meat. So think about it. Folks gather in their Trade guilds. This becomes even more significant in the next letter. But they have these trade guilds in every city where you would gather with your particular trade and you would work together to set prices, to make money, and you would have a patron, God or goddess, for your particular trade. It would not be all that different from sort of modern labor unions. And so it. It protects the quality of the product. It protects the price of the product, and they gather together in these contexts for that. Or maybe it's just a civic organization that's gathered together to do something for the community, and they've gathered together to eat. Now, here is where the problem arises. Because oftentimes, these civic organizations, in fact, every time, these civic organizations and these trade guilds are going to be connected directly to a pagan god or goddess. And in the background, when you're gathering together to eat, you're celebrating those. Gods and goddesses, but let's just be practical here. Think about the justification that you could make in your mind. The food is free. Now, we're Baptists here, and we know that free food in any circumstance brings a crowd. That's why a lot of times when we do things outward toward the community, what do we offer? free food or childcare, right? We want free food. And when you consider the fact that these folks were probably poor, the idea of getting a free meal is not not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. So they might be asking, well, why wouldn't we eat it if it's free? But John wants them to consider but at what cost? At what cost to our witness? At what cost to the gospel of Christ are we doing this? The food eaten at these meetings would have no doubt been sacrificed to the God in whose temple they were meeting. It would have been eaten in honor of that God as well. And even with our free food justification— or even with our knowledge that these so-called gods in actuality are nothing in comparison to the one true God. We know that. We know they're nothing. They're not actually leading us astray. We're just there for the free food. We could end up, at least appearing, to worship an idol. You might wonder why they would have ever been tempted to do this because in some ways it seems pretty obvious to us with 2,000 years of looking in the rearview mirror. But what if going had a direct impact on your paycheck? If you didn't participate in the trade guilds, you could be cut out of the economic system and put on the fringe in life that's already difficult it just gets harder. They could have even argued that even the Romans do not really, really believe that the emperor is a god. So why not just go along to get along so I can live as a good member of the guild. I can live as a respected member of our city I don't really believe the emperors of God. I don't really believe in these gods, but I've got to feed my family. Maybe even making the justification, I will have more to give to the church. But we need to ask ourselves, you know, this is 2,000 years in the rearview mirror, but what about me today? What compromises do I make with the world so that I can make a living? How do I compromise what is right before God so that I can get a paycheck? Is there a sense in which I'm worshiping at the altar of a pagan god or goddess every day. So we've got to ask ourselves about this temptation to compromise. We've got to prepare ourselves for it because it is only going to increase more and more in the days and weeks and years that are ahead. We need to be able to anticipate how is my workplace going to change so that we can prepare our hearts and minds to respond in a way that honors God. And here's the thing, if we're not prepared, we're going to fail. If we're not prepared, we're not going to have eyes to see and ears to hear when the compromise comes because it's happening already in various state uh, legal associations the bar is making it such that you don't that if you don't personally advocate for same-sex marriage or for other elements of the sexual revolution that you cannot be admitted into the bar. in in, in various uh, places where folks pursue graduate study in psychology or sociology, they're being shut out and told, essentially, you can do all the work in the program, you can write your thesis, but if you don't hold to this particular doctrine, you can't graduate. How far are we willing to go to compromise? The second thing, or the third thing, That he warns them about is that they need to resist this lure of sexual and spiritual immorality. So, notice what he says at the very end there of verse fourteen. After the meat sacrificed to idols, and then lastly, he warns them about committing sexual immorality. We need to flee it. It is not altogether clear, though, if John is speaking literally or metaphorically in this verse. That's why this book is so difficult at times. It could very well be that John is speaking out very literally about a temptation to return to the former way of life that they had in the practice of sexual immorality related to these pagan places of worship. But he could also be explaining, and maybe they go hand in hand, that their compromises were a form of spiritual prostitution. Which is an image that the prophets of the Old Testament would use all throughout in talking about the way that Israel dealt with the one true and living God. If John is talking about the Christians having sex with sacred prostitutes, quote unquote sacred prostitutes at the temples or more likely the sexual promiscuity that would take place at these guild parties, he's making it very clear that there are consequences for being too engaged with the culture and having an uncritical acceptance of the practices that are going on around us. And this will lead to far greater problems. It's an entryway into giving ourselves over to the worship of the gods. You see, as we talk about this temptation, this temptation to pursue this pleasure in these pagan worship practices that God forbids, in fact, in any relationship outside of a marriage between a man and a woman, as we approach this and as we seek to live, engage in our culture, we need to tell a better story. We need to Yes, say God forbids this, but we need to tell a better story of the beauty of God's design for human flourishing in a marriage between a man and a woman and we must proclaim the value of what it means to be made in the image of God and how pursuing these pleasures outside of God's design is not going to bring the flourishing that we long for, but is going to bring lasting pain. And we must speak against sexual morality in such a way that we don't crush those who have been caught in this sin in the past or in the present. And we don't shame those struggling with the sins of the past from which they have repented, but which the devil brings up over and over and over again. You see, that's the way the devil works. The devil tempts us over and over and over again. You're going to know pleasure. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get what you desire. You're going to get what you want in all kinds of areas of life. And then when we go across that boundary, when we break God's law, when we pursue things outside of God's design, the moment it happens, he turns into the greatest legalist the world has ever known. And look what you've done and God will never love you. We need to recognize the schemes of the devil. We need to be prepared so that we can offer a better word for the people of God. And this image of sexual immorality, long used throughout the Scriptures, helps us to recognize that our loyalty has to be to God and God alone. And you might respond, well, I've never done this type of thing. I've never gone to a pagan temple. I've never participated with a pagan prostitute. Well, okay. But have you ever actually bowed before a statue without even realizing it? Because there are gods in our culture, but maybe they're not quite as easily seen. Maybe the God of materialism, where every decision always seems to be made by, is it going to make me more money? A God of greed. Or maybe around the cult of personality in our culture, where you can go to the social media profiles of folks that have really, frankly, no Lasting redeeming value in the things that they offer and their opinions, and they have millions upon millions upon millions of followers. And frankly, let's just be honest, we have a star of a reality show as the president of our country. We are in love with our culture, we are in love with the status that things can give. So let's make this real practical. We spend money on things that we want, and there's nothing left to give to the church. What would you do, for instance, if you were faced with the dilemma of either keeping your season tickets to the Clemson football game or giving what God has called you to give to your church? We make that decision to keep the tickets, it might be a little more subtle than bowing down before a statue of the Caesar, but maybe metaphorically we're bowing down before a rock still. What does that say in the end about where our ultimate loyalties lie? Well, here's my fear. My fear is that as Americans, we've been duped into thinking that a faithful Christian life can be lived in step with our larger culture. And the problem is, we have never considered that being a faithful Christian could put us into conflict with the values of our government and the values of our society. And if we don't wrestle with that fact, Jesus just might make war against us. So John then calls the church to contrition. He calls them to repent. Look at what he says in verse 16. So repent. It's pretty simple. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice that sword there again. Whose power really matters? Don't worry about the one who can take your life. Worry about the one who can condemn you to an eternity in hell. That's the one you need to be worried about. You need to be worried about the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And frankly, this word should scare us to death. If the church does not repent, Christ will come and make war against it and its compromise. You see, the greatest problem is not just that people have fallen into sin, but the church is blind to it. They don't even recognize what's right in front of their eyes. They're blind to the fact that they have compromised their loyalty to God. The church does not even see that these things are taking place. And we might say, well, we would hold people accountable if they were taking part in some illicit affairs. Like what is happening here? But would we really? Or would we just keep it in the closet and hope that the problem would go away? Maybe, although I have my doubts, we wouldn't do that with some type of sexual sin like John describes. But what about those other more acceptable sins? I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that we need to go on a witch hunt in the church and and discipline half the members in the church. I'm not saying that at all, but I am concerned that we are not as concerned as we need to be about maintaining the purity of the church and promoting holiness among its members. This is a warning to us. We need to stand firm in the truth And we need to be willing to confront the sin in our own lives first and then in the body so that we can move forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the last thing that John does is he ends with the fact that he is confident they will hear this message, they will heed this message, they will repent, and they will conquer you see, this is the thing in all of these messages, even to the church at Laodicea at the end, there is always hope because there is a king, Jesus, who reigns and rules over everything. So no matter how dire the circumstance, no matter how far they have fallen, God is always at work to accomplish his purpose. And John is confident that he will do it. So look at what we see in verse 17. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And then we have this list. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. On that stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So there are three rewards that are offered here that we want to see. First of all, to eat the hidden manna. The Son of Man offers to those who overcome, to those who endure to the end, to eat this manna food that really satisfies, not the food that's sacrificed to idols, but the hidden manna that comes from God that will satisfy all of their desires. Here's the thing. We believe the lie that the things that Satan and his minions will offer this temporary pleasure are really going to satisfy, and they never, ever satisfy. What he wants them to recognize is that what Jesus offers It will satisfy you not just for today, not for tomorrow, not for next month, but for eternity. You see, John explains to the people of Pergamum that they are far too easily satisfied with the fellowship that is provided by their trade guilds and provided by the false gods and provided by the food that they get that is eaten in connection to these gods, they really need the food that He gives, the food that is received, like in the in the Exodus that God would give every day. That it was a test of faith to no, know you take what is given today; it will satisfy for today. If you try to hoard it up, it's not going to last. But you live every day in faith that God will provide. And what he provides is a lasting, more satisfying food and a lasting and more satisfying fellowship than any pagan God could ever provide. The way this comes to bear on me, particularly in this time of year, is with our favorite sports teams. You know, I'm from the state of Kentucky. I'm a graduate of the University of Kentucky. And we won a ball game yesterday. So my mood's pretty good today. It was a difficult game. Best player didn't play. We barely won. And there would have been a lot of folks here in South Carolina that would have become Wofford fans really fast if we had lost. And I would have heard a lot about it, especially if I was at my home church today. But here's the thing. My team that I love has won eight national championships. That's a lot. Second most. But think about how long college basketball has been played. 80 years or so. Maybe longer than that. Tenth of the time you get to the ultimate goal. That's not super satisfying. And it's the same with anything else that we put all of our hopes and dreams in. Any victory that we win in this life is temporary. And even if we win this year, most likely there'll be another champion next year. It just doesn't last. But Jesus gives the ultimate lasting victory. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And here's the thing, no one's ever gonna replace him because he's the eternal king. He's the only one who can really satisfy. Well, the second thing that he talks about is you're gonna receive a white stone. Now, this one's a little stranger, frankly. White stones were used in all kinds of various ways and so uh, in this culture, and it's not altogether clear exactly what John's talking about. They were used in courts to denote that someone had received an acquittal. Used a black stone if you're guilty, a white stone if you're not guilty. And it could be here that this statement is a reference to their righteous status with Christ and the fact that they will be acquitted by God on the final day, which is absolutely true. But I think there's probably a different reference that John is making. Maybe they even go hand in hand in the end. But these stones are most likely a reference to the stones that were used in this ancient Near Eastern world as a ticket for entrance into a feast or a public assembly, especially in light of what we've seen earlier in this passage. It seems that's what's going on here, that this is the ticket. This is the thing. This white stone is what's going to get you into the feast. It's what's going to get you into the banquet. And what John is talking about here is he's talking about this ticket of entrance into the Messianic banquet that he's going to describe later on in the book that you're going to be invited into this banquet where Jesus Christ provides ultimate and lasting and final food for his people, where he's going to bring judgment on their oppressors. He's going to establish God's kingdom reign forever. He is going to give them the ultimate satisfaction for which they long. And he's going to give them that food from the tree of life that is in the midst of the paradise of God that they're going to eat from for the rest of their lives and be day by day by day, satisfied more and more and more with the food that God provides as they live in his presence. But then the last thing is a new name. The fact that they're given a new name goes back to the promises of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56 and 62 but what he's getting at here as he builds upon what God has promised through Isaiah is that we will be given a name of blessing for eternity. And that is the name of our king, Jesus the Lord. As you go through the rest of the book, you're gonna find something out. Satan is going to try to mimic and mock everything about the true God. He's gonna place a mark on those who are his followers. And what John's saying here is you don't want that. You want the mark and the name on your forehead of your king, Jesus. You want to be sealed as his. You want to be known with him for eternity because he will provide everything that we need in this life and for eternity because he's the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. So as we conclude today, as we think through what he's offering to us, we need to recognize that all of these things that are waging war against our faithful following of Jesus, all of these compromises of the truth that we're being called to make, they are temporary, they will end and a new one will begin. There is only one who is eternal, and that is King Jesus. And he demands and deserves our undivided loyalty. So for those of us in this room this morning that are followers of Jesus, as we come to this time of response, our posture needs to be to listen to the Holy Spirit and listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. He who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to what the Spirit is saying about those places of compromise in our lives. And we need this morning to repent and seek the one who satisfies. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, the fact of the matter is you are now under his wrath. You're never gonna know the satisfaction of living in fellowship with him. You're never going to know the, the hope that he provides. You're never going to have the ticket into entry into the eternal banquet with the king unless you repent and believe. And if you do, He will change everything about you. He will transform you and He will give you the satisfaction of living as you were made to live. So, as we come to this time, let's pray together and seek God and then respond as He calls us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would minister to us by your Spirit. We pray that you would convict us by your spirit, that your convicting power would be so real and present that we would recognize in that conviction that we need to repent because what you are offering is life-giving, soul-satisfying, and it makes the difference in life and death both today and and forever. Lord, give us the will to respond and change us for your glory forever. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.